This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. I'm Matt Chorley and this is Politics Without the Boring Bits. Yeah, a brand new look for the Red Box podcast. Let us know what you think about it, actually. Do you like the new do you like the new picture, big picture of my big fat face? You can email me, Matt, at times.radio. And do tell your friends, because if more people subscribe to the podcast, we'll go up the charts. Or, better still, why not leave us a review and tell us what you think, just wherever you're listening to this. You can post a review and all of that. Coming up on today's episode, it's only Alan Titchmarsh. Regular listeners will know that a few weeks ago, I sailed from Southampton to New York as part of the Times and the Sunday Times Cheltenham Literature Festival at Sea. Alan Titchmarsh was on board. Once we'd both got onto dry land, got our sea legs back, if that's the right phrase, I caught up with Alan to talk to him about interviewing Keir Starmer and loads of other stuff, gardening and celebrity interviews. A really good interview coming up with him. We've also got the latest chunk of the columnists focus group some of our favourite Times columnists looking at Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer's year and if you like what you hear here you can join me for Politics Without the Boring Bits live on Times Radio on your DAB radio on your smart speaker or download the Times Radio app that's Politics Without the Boring Bits on Times Radio weekdays from 10 Baked potato changed my life Always good to have everyone's favourite potato tycoon in the news. That's how he made all his money, washing potatoes. And he's, of course, thick as mash. Uh, So, uh, the news is that Andrew Bridgen, who you remember, was originally suspended from the House of Commons uh, because he broke lobbying rules after taking money from a timber firm. Uh, He's always been a fan of two short planks. Uh, then uh, then he was suspended for the Conservative Party for, for comparing the vaccine uh, uh, rollout to the Holocaust. Uh, then he joined the Reclaim Party. Uh, I say party, it's really just, you know, what goes on in uh, Lawrence Fox's spare room. But Andrew Bridgen became the Reclaim Party's uh, first and only MP. And now he's quit over a difference in direction. Apparently it's been an incredible difficult decision and insisted he still supported all the policies and values of Reclaim. So that's the obvious thing to do, if you support everything that the party stands for. 
then uh, you resign from him. But the good news is he's going to continue standing up for and fighting for the people of Northwest Leicestershire, those lucky, lucky, lucky people uh, who've got Andrew Bridgen still as their MP. So good, good news, good news. Some Andrew Bridgen, uh, Andrew Bridgen news. Uh, best of luck to the uh, the good people of Northwest Leicestershire. Now, Parliament has now broken up for Christmas, uh, but not before everyone got in the end of term mood. Here is Jeremy Hunt, the Chancellor, bringing plenty of Christmas cheer. If Santa borrowed £28 billion, he might have more toys to give out this year, but he'd also have debt interest to pay and fewer toys to give out next year. Chortle, chortle. Then Ian Little Granger, the Tory MP, managed to shoehorn in some classic Christmas to a debate on local government finance. I will also inject, I think, some seasonal flavour into the mix. For the story that I'm about to tell is a modern morality tale in the manner of Charles Dickens, who we all remember and love. Those familiar with Dickens' most famous novel, in my view, A Christmas Carol, will hardly need reminding that the narrative centres around the central character of Ebenezer Scrooge. Anybody with familiar with local government in Mid-Devon will instantly recognise good old heirs of Ebenezer. Every town hall has one. <laughs> it went on for a long time, this tortured, tortured metaphor of how uh, Mid-Devon Council is just like Ebenezer Scrooge. But Westminster has got some way uh, to go to reach the the levels of the Irish Parliament. This is uh, the Minister, Leo Varadkar, keeping up the Irish Parliament's annual tradition. I would like to confirm uh, that Santa Claus has permission to enter Irish airspace uh, and to cross our borders on December 24th through December 25th. Um, and I want to thank uh, IAA, Inish, Department of Agriculture and the Revenue Commissioners uh, for allowing uh, the necessary exemptions uh, to occur. Yeah, they do that every year in the Irish Parliament. They open up airspace to Santa. But of course, uh, in the UK, the only person with exemptions to fly across Britain willy-nilly uh, is Rishi Sunak's helicopter. The Columnists. Yeah, all this week, uh, we are hearing from our Columnists Focus Group panel. James Marriott, Robert Crampton, Alice Thompson, Matthew Bell, Libby Burris and Manveen Rana. Early this week, we heard from who they thought were the winners and losers of the year. Today, we focus on Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer's year. Started with the Prime Minister, who kicked off the year by being fined for not wearing a seatbelt and then unveiled his five pledges. We will halve inflation, grow the economy, reduce debt cut waiting lists and stop the boats. Well, with the news of inflation being down, he's, he's at least managed one of the five. Uh, we kick off by asking Matthew Bell if he thought that Rishi Sunak ended the year in a better or worse place. I think he ends it in a much better year. You know, bringing back David Cameron was a stroke of genius because it reassures normal people that the Conservative Party are Conservatives and they're normal, they're not mad anymore. They've got rid of Nadine, they've got rid of all the lunatics, and they're bringing back sensible people like David Cameron, or Cameron and Chipping Norton, whoever it is. And, uh, and I think so he's going to end on a year where he's actually giving Keir Starmer something to worry about, which is 
what the Liz Plus 42 days showed was that you can't take any great risks um, anymore. You've got to stick to the centrist line and hope that the voters will, will tick the box that means, you know, better the devil you know. And so I think it's probably ending in a better place. What do you think, Manveen? Manveenana? Um, I think he's ending it better just because I think being leader of the Tory party is a bit like sort of riding on a bucking bronco. So just the fact that he's managed to get through to the end of the year and he's not gone yet um, is probably progress. I mean, it is, a, it is a party where the moment you're appointed, everybody's talking about regicide. So just surviving is, is no bad thing. Um, he's had some terrible failures. Um, I mean, you sort of forget that he had a massive success with the Windsor framework. I'm pleased to report that we have now made a decisive breakthrough. Together, we have changed the original protocol and are today announcing the new Windsor framework. But is really bad at selling his successes. Uh, instead, everybody's going to spend the end of the year talking about Rwanda instead. And you think that's really bad political management. Um, and I think his political management has been appalling. You know, HS2 being cancelled while you're in Manchester. I am cancelling the rest of the HS2 project. And in its place, and in its place, we will, in, we will reinvest every single penny. Another terribly crass way of, of running government. You, you can't believe it. it's all just bad luck. You sort of think at some point there's, he's, he's just not very good at managing the politics around him, I think. That was, that's one of the, the things that I think actually surprised me is that he, he turns out he's really not very good at politics. The, the, the management of, you know, putting Suella Brabman back in the cabinet when he didn't really need to. He had an opportunity, could have dropped the Rwanda scheme and didn't. And it's all a bit sort of politics 101. It's all come back to bite him. What do you think, Robert? I think that's, I think that's an interesting point. I think that's a function of people getting into Parliament and then becoming very powerful very quickly, which didn't used to happen. You used to have 20 years to learn the ropes. Uh, but you get, he gets a rock-solid safe seat. And a few years after being elected, he's chief secretary and then he's uh, chancellor and then he's prime minister. So you don't learn uh, political skills in fighting. Uh, I think his year got better gradually up until the party conference where I thought he made a good speech. The 30-year political status quo I am here to end. Uh, I think HS2 was a brave decision. Uh, I mean, it was idiotic to do it in Manchester, but it was still the right thing to do. And then I think it got rapidly worse just the last couple of months. I thought the King's speech was really weak. Uh, nothing in it, nothing on housing, nothing on planning, nothing on the environment, I don't think. Uh, 15 bills or something proposed, including something about rickshaws in Westminster. That looks like a government that's run out of steam. And so I don't think he ends it particularly well. And he's still under threat. So... Yeah, gradual improvement, looking good, but he should be in a better position than he is. He should be ta he should be getting the credit for the inf for, for inflation coming down. He's not, as Manveen said, he's not he's not he didn't get credit for the Windsor he's not getting credit for the Windsor framework, and he's now not getting credit for a pretty dramatic drop in inflation, better than better than we hoped. Uh, I think Jeremy Hunt is a bit actually, but Rishi's not, and now he's he's the eat out help out is uh, being seen as a bit of a disaster, despite what Libby said. He's uh he's, it's not playing well for him, so. It's interesting, though, isn't it? Um, the, the the part of his sort of I'm the guy who's going to sort things out. He has been doing that on some fronts, inflation and Northern Ireland and so on. 
But he's then created so many other noisy messes, rows about HS2 and rows about Rwanda. It's all got a bit sort of covered up. Alice, what do you make of Rishi Sunak's year? So I think the only thing that Robert missed out was that he did do the smoking ban for the under-14s. If we could stop the start, then we would be on our way to ending the biggest cause of preventable death and disease in our country. Um, but that was almost the only thing that you can think of that he may yet get through. And actually, in New Zealand, they've gone the other way and reversed it. So I'm a little bit worried about even that one. I think he's had quite a bad year, actually. I started off the year thinking he might do OK and that he might end up being the centrist dad that brings everyone together, and the sort of management consultant. And actually, I think it's got worse and worse. I think he never distanced himself enough from Boris Johnson. And I think the highlight for him was probably interviewing Elon Musk. If you have an AI that has memory, you know, and remembers all of your interactions and has read everything, you're going to say, like, give it permission to read everything you've ever done. So it really will know you better than anyone, <laughs> perhaps even yourself. You will actually have a great friend. Um, as, as long as that friend can stay your friend and not get turned off or something. <laughs> uh, don't turn off my friend. And I think you knew then when you saw him that he was already planning his exit route and that I think he'll follow Nick Clegg and go to the west coast of America soon. And by next Christmas, he may be in his house there and he may be in a far better paid job and far happier. Although Nick Clegg obviously ended up coming back and he's back in London now because he, he didn't like being in Silicon Valley quite as much. Uh, James Marriott, wish you see next year. Yeah, I, I mean, I think bad and I think not due to, you know, his failure to communicate whatever successes he's had. I just think the Conservative Party is at a point where it's in the grip of larger historical forces. There's a sense of exhaustion with the government. The cost of living crisis was, you know, terrible for them. If you, I mean, if you look at the polls, you know, he took over a party that was, you know, what kind of mid-20s, low-20s in the polls. It's in exactly the same place as it was. I just think there are kind of forces larger than even a competent prime minister can control. And I think he's stuck with those and he can, you know, come across as competent as he likes every so often. But I don't really think... There is much he can do. I think he's sort of stuck with this. It's really striking, actually. When you think all through the year, we kept being told uh, the reshuffle was going to be the, the turning point, the party conference, the autumn statement, the Rwanda decision. All these things were going to be the, uh, you know, they were going to be the moment that, that sort of kick-started his, his premiership and, and none of them have happened. James Marriott, how do you think Keir Starr, well, he clearly he's had a good year. Uh, yeah, but, I mean, it's amazing. Yeah. Uh, he's so far ahead in the polls, I, and it's kind of, I think it's kind of missed how amazing it is because obviously everyone obsessed with politics wants him to be, do like exciting, you know, jazzy things, but he just has been kind of boring and uneventful. And actually, I think that's an underrated, often perhaps even the best political strategy. Alish, your view on Keir Starmer's year? So Keir Starmer, I think the glitter was the highlight. I think the fact that he uh, had glitter poured all over him at the Labour Party conference. Uh, just showed what a kind of sparkling year he had, that he didn't have to say anything at all. He was like the sort of fairy on the top of the tree, kind of unapproachable almost. That, um, and I think the other point was um, when he was interviewed about donkeys. Um, we've got donkeys on today. And now your mum was a great donkey person, wasn't she? She was. So my mum and dad had four children. And as we each left home, they replaced us with a donkey. And you thought, actually, you're not going to get any difficult questions until you get into government. And uh, I felt rather sorry for Rishi Sunak. I think he's desperate to be asked about donkeys or almost oh, anything oh. else. Oh, yeah. um, and Keir Starmer talking about his mum and how he was pushed out of the house for donkeys is just great copy without saying anything. Libby, Keir Starmer's here. I think it's been a sort of steady plod, plod, plod forward, but it has been forward. I think he's starting to get the, the, a sense of people 
people are having to have a sort of confidence in him. There, there is a grown-up in the room. You know, they feel very sorry. A lot of people I know, certainly, uh, you know, right out here in the sticks, feel very sorry for Rishi Sunak. You know, he has been landed with the most appalling sort of cake full of nonsense. And then he got himself trapped in a corner with this Rwanda stuff, which is basically all Pretty Patel's fault and Suella's fault, and not really his. Uh, but I think Keir Starmer has... Uh, gradually more and more given the impression of somebody who is solid. He talks about all these sort of solid things, whereas we have this huge sort of fairy tale Rwanda stuff going on elsewhere. And so I think he sort of plod, plod, plod slowly towards us. Uh, that's the feeling I get. Uh, Manveen, are you more excited than plodding? Not really. Um, <laughs> he, hasn't, he hasn't had a single moment where he really stands out and you think, ah, there's a man who is a leader, but he hasn't needed it. You know, he's, he seems more confident at PMQs. He seems to be sort of uh, a little bit more comfortable in his skin, but it doesn't matter. He's going to win the next election. You know, you look at the Tory party conference versus the Labour party conference, and you know where the momentum is. You know, uh, most Tory MPs are very busy announcing they're stepping down at the next election. Everyone's trying to get a Labour ticket. You, you can feel power shifting. And he's benefited from that. He's done quite well in, I, I think, sort of sneaking into big events on the on the global stage. So he was at COP and managed, managed while he was there to sort mm. of speak to lots of world leaders and then bring it up in every interview since. So he starts to look more like he could be a prime minister. He could be somebody who sort of holds his own um, globally. Um, I do wonder how much, you know, we still don't quite know how it's all going to play out, but I do wonder how much Israel could still be a problem for him. That's been the only really sticky moment where people in his own party, but also huge amounts of his supporters, you know, when you look at the demographics of who has voted Labour in the past, you know, there's a lot of the Muslim community who vote Labour who are very annoyed about his stance. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. But as things stand, the polls certainly have him very easily winning the next election. And actually, you're right that what happened over Israel and that vote where, what was it, 50 yeah. odd of his MPs voted against him and he lost front benches. That's a reminder, if he does get into government, he could quite quickly face exactly the sort of challenges that the Tory prime ministers have faced when you've got a wing of your party who don't like you and will find issues to, you know, illustrate that. So it might not all be plain sailing. Uh, Matthew Bell, your view of Keir Starmer's year? Well, I think he has obviously had a very good year because he's on course to be the next prime minister. But as James was saying, you know, when we're talking about Rishi, the problems are bigger than, than either of them. And I think anyone in, in Keir Starmer's uh, job at the moment would be doing well because what you're up against is a collapsing Conservative Party. So it's 1996 over again, but you haven't got this charismatic Tony Blair figure. And I haven't, you know, I can't recall a single moment of the year when I was like, fantastic, go Keir, that's what we want to hear. I'm not, you know, excited when I see him or hear him speak. I'm a little bit disappointed, but I'm like, okay, well, he'll do. But, you know, you feel he could be doing better, could do better. But as James said, again, it's it's enough. It's fine. He'll get over the finish line. But it's not like, I don't think it's by his own doing. It's just by sitting back and letting things go wrong for the Tories that we're seeing him um, crawl over the finish line. <laughs> Robert Crampton, your view on Keir Starmer's year? Yeah, I would. Yeah, underwhelming, but it doesn't need to be anything more. I mean, I'm, I'm surprised. I've got to the we've got to the end, and nobody's mentioned Roy Jenkins when he's carrying Tony Blair carrying the Ming vials very carefully across the shiny floor. But that Keir's reprising that, isn't he? That's all he has to do. I'm not entirely sure. I agree with Matthew that anyone would be okay. I don't think Jeremy Corbyn would be okay if if he were leading the Labour Party. I wouldn't be voting for him, for instance. Uh, I thought the Israel stance was actually 
bearing in mind that I agreed with his stance, I thought that was evidence that he'd got a reasonably good control of the Labour Party, actually. I mean, that, given the strength of feeling on the left about that issue. For me, this isn't about the particular position taken by individuals within the Labour Party. It's about alleviating that suffering. And just at the moment, we desperately need humanitarian aid to get in faster into Gaza. I thought he got away with that, and that impressed me. It was a real potential banana skin, and he kind of got, he got through it. And he looked, made me think he's, he's, he's got some courage, and, he, and, and yeah, grown up, and that he might have actually shifted... The, I'm always sceptical about how much the Labour Party's changed, but that that made me optimistic. And I suppose um, because there was a foreign policy issue, it's quite easy to contain that. If it became a row of a domestic issue or overspending, yeah, or it cuts, is, a, that's going to be harder. But, but it, is right, domestic, got, it is a domestic issue in a way, as Manveen said. You've got four, four million Muslims in this country. You've only got yeah. two hundred seventy thousand Jews. There's a just electorally, it's yeah, it's potentially very damaging for it. And I think, and I think he. He has contained it, not to say it won't blow up again in the months ahead of the election, but I think it's on the so far. And don't forget, you can read the very best political analysis every day in The Times and The Sunday Times. Just get yourself a subscription at thetimes.co.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Yes, Matt Cholley on Times Radio. Now, I spend a lot of time interviewing politicians. Politicians going on all the usual political shows. But sometimes they break out of that and they go on a, on a different show, the show that normal people watch. And at the weekend, Keir Starmer popped up on ITV's Love Your Weekend with Alan Titchmarsh. Um, we've got donkeys on today, and now your mum was a great donkey person, wasn't she? She was. So my mum and dad had four children... And as we each left home, they replaced us with a donkey. They used to rescue donkeys. <laughs> That'll so make they, the headlines. <laughs> so they, they, in the end, they had four donkeys. So what's going on? Well, who better to ask than the man who interviewed him? Alan Titchmarsh. Alan, welcome to Times Radio. Thank you, Matt. Nice to be with you. So um, what goes through your mind then? Normally you have like nice celebrities and people talking about the countryside <laughs> on your programme. What goes through your mind when Keir Starmer says he wants to come on? Well, I think the thing that would go through any, you know, any person, any human being on the planet is, is particularly when Love Your Weekend is connected with countryside and predicated on that and animal welfare and farming and horticulture. Not strictly that, but we have celebrities on too. But it is a programme which is set in the countryside, about the countryside on a Sunday morning. Because when we started doing it, I thought, well, it's all either politics or cookery on a Sunday morning, and I don't particularly want either of those. I'd love something that was much more relaxed, general, pastoral, if you like. Um, and we have all manner of guests, actors, authors, musicians, whatever, um, seldom politicians, and I wouldn't make a habit of having politicians on, uh, but Keir Starmer was offered, um, and I was very curious because we're all sort of heading towards an election at some point, and, and those of us who live in the countryside work in the countryside and those of us who are concerned with growers, farmers, horticulturists, the whole 
the whole management of the countryside can be a bit nervous about different political parties coming into power, thinking, will they really take care of it? Or do they just want to concrete the lot? And we hear a lot about, you know, the importance, quite rightly, of housing. But often countryside is sort of pushed to one side and oh well but we need housing more than anything you know we need we need to save energy so we need solar panels everywhere and i'm just anxious to learn a what the policies were of the labor party without being overly heavy i didn't suddenly want to turn it into sunday with laura coonsberg we've been doing a bit on the other side but i wanted reassurance um from a party who's not in power at the moment if they were to come in power what was their view of the countryside but also in a personable way. I think if you're the sort of interviewer I am, and I've, goodness me, done it for about 30-odd years now, um, I have a gentle way of approaching things, which often achieves, sometimes, dare I say, better results than if you wade in there bludgeoning them to death, you know. So did you, uh, given all your concerns about housing and about solar panels and all that, did you come away reassured by Keir Starmer's approach that he understood the issues facing the countryside? I think he does understand the issues. Um, I was very heartened by the fact that he said he, his aim would be that we should produce 50% of our own food. I think we should have a target for 50% homegrown food. Can you achieve that? Is that realistic? I think we can. Firstly, we need to be ambitious about this. We need to work with farmers to make that work. The government can pull levers. There are big procurements for food into the NHS and other places. So there are things that the government can do. But we should take great pride in that. That is, you know, what drives our countryside. And it's very, very precious. And this, which is a laudable ambition, and I, I do wish we could. At least it's an effort. You know, the other thing, if we, if we why aim for the stars and we have the moon already? Well, if you look at the stars, at least you're not in the gutter. I'm mixing up about 58 metaphors there. <laughs> um, it's a laudable aim. Um, and he explained that he had actually grown up in the countryside. And although much of electoral sort of, propaganda, as it were, whichever party you are, is concerned with where the greater number of voters are, which is towns and cities. Those towns and cities are fed by the countryside. And I think it's it's important that um, MPs of all colour, all parties, realise what the countryside can do for us, particularly since Brexit. We need it to support us now. We need it to be used efficiently. And that doesn't always mean covering it in solar panels when it's good land for growing food which sustains us so i but uh, as well as sort of tackling him on that core i wanted to find out about the man because i think the intriguing thing about keir starmer is we can look him up and find out what he's done and his great plus is that he has had a career before politics so many politicians now go through university become a spad um, they, they go just sort of ally to government, then they become an MP. There's no experience in industry in its widest sense, whatever that industry might be, the workplace. And I felt he had had that. And um, so I took trouble and care to ask him about that. But I also wanted to find out a little bit about what the man was like. How important was family to him? And I put it to him that to be an MP nowadays, particularly to be a leader of a political party, my goodness me, you put yourself up there in the firing line. And I think we expect sometimes too much of individuals to actually hack this, you know, and we talked about keeping family out of the limelight and whatnot. I wanted to give the viewer a greater insight into the man. You'll know, Matt, from whenever you interview a new people will always come up to you after to say, what is X really like? And I hope a bit that I endeavoured to show people viewing what Keir Starmer was really like.
it was really interesting. I thought actually, when he was talking about how he tries to protect his children, he doesn't sort of use name them or use them in photos. We don't name them in public. We don't do photo shoots with them or anything like that. We like to try and let them live their life as ordinarily as they can mm. in the circumstances. And I, you know, there's not many things that worry me about what may happen next in politics, but what you know, protecting my children is probably the number one thing. And he's also quite keen. While, while obviously in no way measuring the curtains for Downing Street, were he to become Prime Minister, that he still wanted to play his five-a-side uh, <laughs> football, which I thought was uh, was interesting. I wanted to ask you, it's interesting, you talk about the, the, the solar panels. Do you think we've got too many solar panels in fields, these sort of solar farms? Should we put a stop to them? I think we should put a stop to putting solar panels in places where we could use the land better for growing food, and also where they are, complete eyesores. We, we've learned, certainly we learned through COVID and through lockdown, the value of countryside in lifting our spirits, the value of the great outdoors. If we just wipe away beauty in the interests of staying warm and staying lit, well, what are we living for? If we can't have a better quality of life, if our mental health is affected, which you know, there's so much talk about mental health now, too much, I think, in many ways. Life has always been tough for kids and for grown-ups. I mean, I'll park that one now. <laughs> Let's take it <laughs> but it is over, over talked about. But we need beautiful countryside and we need productive countryside. Yes, we need cheaper energy, but not at the cost of being able to produce our own food and going out and finding beautiful countryside. If we cover every field in solar panels, yeah, we'll save a bit on the electricity, but there'd be no much point in, in going out there and looking at it, will there? It's interesting you mentioned not wanting to get into trouble. Do you worry about cancel culture in 2023? Do you worry that did a, <laughs> do you, you could be cancelled? I did, I did an interview for a paper um, relatively recently, a big interview feature, and it was headlined, I'm frightened of being cancelled. I'm not frightened of being cancelled. <laughs> I'm appalled by the very existence of cancel culture because tolerance for me is a two-way thing. Um, I like to think I'm very tolerant of, of people with different opinions to myself. It seems to me that a lot of so-called minority groups are not particularly tolerant of opinions that differ from theirs. And I think it's important that we all tolerate each other and that we maintain the ability for this country still to boast that it has free speech. And I think too many people at the moment are frightened of saying what they feel, which isn't always, you know, wrong. It's just different and i think we really do need to safeguard our ability to speak freely about what we feel and for opinions that differ from those of our own to be considered you know i try and understand why somebody i'm not putting painting myself as a pollyanna figure but you know if people could feel completely different to you why rather than just saying you're going to be cancelled oh stop it you know well, let, let's get back onto possibly safer territory yeah you're the world that you're known best for the world of the garden mm. Um, where do you stand on the sort of rewilding, you know, <laughs> let it all just grow approach? You know, I'm, I've, I'm sort of trying to look after my garden. We've got the vegetables at the bottom and the flowers over there and mow the lawn and all of that. But, you know, should I be just letting it all just 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 all hang out and let it let it rewild? No, it's a question of balance, as it always is. I look out of the window here. I have a two acre wildflower meadow that I sowed by hand. I bought a bit of field and sowed a wildflower meadow. 
the other side here i have a one acre garden which is gardened um what happened here with rewilding which is quite a complex issue certainly for this place down in sussex where they do it nep it's an amazingly elaborate setup with highland cattle and this that and the other uh, what they were saying was bowdlerized and it hit the newspapers and the press as if you want to be really environmentally responsible you should let your garden go wild if you do that, British wildflowers, which provide pollen, nectar and sustenance for all manner of insect life, which is particularly important, they tend to flower from the first cowslips coming out. So you don't, well, you can count snowdrops if you want an early bee. But we start in March, April. Flowers are finished, generally speaking, in British wildflowers by August. April, May, June, July, August, six months of the year, you can offer sustenance. A garden can offer sustenance to wildlife 12 months of the year. We have a 500-year legacy of plant collecting in this country, of gardening, of growing responsibly, organically, safely. That's what's most important, is how you garden, uh, less of what you grow. And there's nothing remotely irresponsible about having a patch of, of lawn that you mow for stripes, as long as you've got another patch which has got the wildflowers in, and you've got diversity, biodiversity in your garden, comes as a result of growing plants from all sorts of different countries. That is not irresponsible. That is responsible, and it's called gardening. And the whole rewilding thing really got out of hand. So, no, grow what you like, but grow it well and grow it responsibly. It's one thing having your, your lawn which you mow for stripes. What about having fake grass? No, I'm afraid I'm again fake grass. We, we're <laughs> trying to do, cut down on plastics. I understand that when people want a, a green surface and on a roof terrace, perhaps, you know, if you want it to look like, fair enough. But the important thing is how you dispose of it, because we're finding our plastics in the seas and everywhere. Mm. It's it's very difficult. I, I find it very hard to recognize, reconcile, um, even when, you know, there's no labour or older people or whatever to cut it. Grow something which is safe for the environment. I think plastic grass for me now is a no-no. Just go back then finally to, to Keir Stummett. You said you've been doing interviews for such a long time. You had mm. your ITV chat show that go all the way back to the days of Pebble Mill, people remember as well. You must have interviewed lots of politicians actually over that over that time. Are there any of those interviews which stick in your mind? I think the ones you're always aware of, will they live up to their promises? I mean, ambition is a great thing and it's a good thing to have. And Keir Starmer certainly has that. It, it, time will tell. A, whether or not he's put in the position of being able to endeavour to fulfil those ambitions and B, how successful he is at it. I've learned over the years from interviewing all kinds of politicians of all colours how difficult it is to move this mammoth beast of this country forward in any direction. I remember once interviewing Michael Portillo and saying when he used to be, he was Minister of Defence and then he became doing these wonderful TV programmes about travelling on trains. I said, do you miss being able to make a difference? And he just threw back his head and laughed and said, I couldn't make a difference. And I felt sad about that. You know, important ministerial posts where he didn't, it may well have been modesty, and I'm sure he did make some kind of difference. I admire those politicians who go into it, and I do admire Keir Starmer's endeavours here. And he said, I'm going, I said, why on earth would any human being want to do this job? And he said, because if I can make a difference, I will try. And I, I firmly believe that he does feel that. Whether or not he's able to with, with the way politics works in this country, I don't know. 
but I remember talking to John Major after he was out of power, and, and we were talking about the West Wing, which I loved on television, you know, with Martin Sheen playing President of the United States. And I said, um, John, is, is there any, it, it, does the West Wing ring true, you know, or is it all sort of made up? He said one thing in particular rings true in the West Wing. He said, on one day, something will be all-consuming. It will take all your time. It will be the issue of the day. And the following day, there'll be another thing coming along that <laughs> occupies you. And he said that much is absolutely true. I'd, it's very easy to be jaundiced about politicians. And indeed, there are many politicians out there that I find it hard to love and hard to respect. But there are more that I find it easier to respect and that I do admire for, you know, putting themselves up there, endeavouring to make a difference. It'll be interesting to see, A, if Keir Starmer does get in power, B, how he handles it, and see if he can make a difference. But I did get the impression that he was a man who was um, genuine, who did want to make that difference. He takes flack, I think, for not being terribly good at public speaking. But in a way, you know, I'd rather have somebody who was able to achieve more and wasn't terribly good at public speaking in a world which is now totally predicated on appearances. Yeah. And if somebody's a good orator, somehow you rather forget what they're saying because they're compelling as individuals. Perhaps it's no bad thing that he's actually not that good or not as good at standing at the dispatchbox or making speeches as he is at actually achieving something. Only time will tell which way around it is. And what about if he picks up the phone, as it seems to be the fashion these days, putting people in the House of Lords, putting them in the Cabinet? What about Lord Titchmarsh of Hampshire in the Cabinet in charge of countryside policy? Um, I think that would... I remember interviewing Greg Dyke once before he came Director General of the BBC and said, would you ever become Director General of the BBC? And he said, there's more chance of Roland Rat becoming Director General of the BBC <laughs> than me. And then he became Director General of the BBC. I think the likelihood <laughs> of me going to the House of Lords is far less likely than Roland Rat going to the House of Lords. <laughs> Alan Titchmarsh, lovely to speak to you. Thanks so much for joining us on Times Radio. And you, Matt. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Politics Without the Boring Bits. Don't forget you can get in touch by emailing me matt at times.radio. If there's anything you want us to do more or less of on the podcast, let us know. But for now, for me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.